Morning, 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 church. How are you guys this morning? Good, good, good. It's such an incredible joy to gather up with all of you this morning uh, to be in a place where we are reminded by the gathering, by the things we get to do together by one another of the extraordinary uh, glory and wonder of, of our God, our King, Jesus, the one who has saved us. What a joy it is to be here and uh, have our eyes turned toward Christ, being reminded of what we are recipients of. Because oftentimes I think uh, you and I live in our dailiness, obviously, and in that dailiness we encounter circumstances, relational dynamics, resource challenges, etc. And it can feel like God is not always present, sometimes absent, missing the boat, not, not shaping something we need shaped, not meeting us where we need meeting, not doing for us what we need doing. And then when we gather up here, we are reminded that though it is great when God intervenes in those daily spaces, that is not glorious. What is glorious is that he has already intervened for us as it concerns our eternal destiny, and he has given us life instead of death, and he has given us purpose instead of just chasing after the wind, and he has reordered all things for us. We are the recipients of a glorious grace and an unimaginable mercy, and it is good for us, is it not, to gather back up and say, do you remember that the love you have received, Renault, the love you have received, everyone, is a love you have no business receiving. And you just have no business receiving it. And like that line says, I, 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 I just don't get it. This is exactly how it reads. Um, uh, I know that I don't deserve this kind of love. Yet, yet, this is exactly the kind of love you turn out to be. That is why we are here, to fix our eyes on Jesus and be reminded of what he has done for us. We are traveling uh, through uh, the story of the Bible in its historical chronology. We've been doing that now for close to two decades. Uh, we started in the book of beginnings, Genesis, and we are working our way to the book of prophetic future, Revelation, uh, the one that gives us the end of the story we do not yet see, but can know because he has revealed it to us. And we are in between those two spaces, but toward the end of that journey. Uh, we are in the historical context uh, of uh, the, uh, the A.D. 60s. So we're in that sort of early 60s to late 60s A.D. And there are a number of letters being written uh, that are being sent out either to a specific church, a specific person, or a group of churches by uh, the authors of uh, the New Testament. And these letters are going out sort of simultaneously, which one comes exactly before the other uh, in that little stretch of the mid-60s, late-60s, uh, they're sort of all happening. So you have Paul writing letters like Second Timothy and uh, Titus, you have Peter writing Second Peter, uh, you have, you have uh, several of these letters starting to shift and move around, and among them, there is a letter called Jude. Uh, and that is the letter that we will have the opportunity and privilege to spend some time in uh, in the weeks to come. 
the letter of Jude uh, lands uh, in that sort of mid to late 60s space. And so what you will notice as we enter this letter, if you've been around here, is that some of the themes in this letter uh, are going to align with the themes that are found in this set of letters that are currently going out to the church. It is sort of a space in which God uh, is closing out his instruction to the church specifically as it relates to God's word. Obviously, he continues to instruct the church throughout history by his spirit through his word. But as far as the finishing out of this journey of God's word, it is sort of this space where he is giving final instructions before he closes out with his revelation of what is to come. And so the book of Jude fits into that space and we get to jump into it and see where we travel. So grab your Bibles, if you will, and we are going to jump into the book of Jude. The easiest way to find Jude, if you're not using a smart device, if you're using a smart device, just type in Jude. But if you're not, is go to Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, and then just go backwards to Revelation chapter 1, and Jude is right before that. Because Jude sits right in front of the book of Revelation as far as its placement in Scripture. However, remember that chronologically, where the books fall in the Bible isn't necessarily aligned with their historical chronology. There's reasons for that. And so Jude actually comes uh, in that space. And after Jude chronologically, from a historical standpoint, we're going to have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John written uh, in the 90s. And we're going to have the book of Revelation also written by John, which is what we will have to travel through uh, in the future. Of course, the book of Hebrews written about the same time as Jude and these other books will be the one we get into next. So, wow, so many things that we still get to adventure through. So let's jump into the book of Jude. Turn with me uh, to the book of Jude, verse 1. I, I don't say chapter 1, verse 1, because there are no chapters in this book, because it is that short. This is a very short little letter. It's just a quick little, and then he sends it off, and it's done. And uh, so we just have verses. And just before I read the first verse, on that note, uh, it is beautiful that this is such a short letter, because what you will find as we explore this letter is that in some ways... God is using this letter landing in the same time to take the total themes that he is unpacking during this time in some of those other letters and sort of uh, focusing on to this. This is what it needs to look like. The summary, if you will, of what we've been traveling through as we have traveled through 2 Timothy, uh, Titus, 2 Peter. This is God saying, let me summarize what I've traveled in those letters through for you. So it's a short summary, however, jam-packed in every way. So we're going to be in it for quite some time. So buckle on up, not just today. All right, so let's jump in. You ready? Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Okay, we'll stop there because there's a lot to cover uh, in what we discover in that simple and small sentence. So Jude introduces himself, and in that introduction, a couple of fascinating things begin to unfold that tell us a lot about why Jude is somebody 
that we should pay very close attention to as he writes, and what attitude Jude is coming with uh, into this letter, and how Jude in his life uh, really empathizes with and connects with us as he even shares in this introduction about our space with God. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother to James. So in this particular case, as we look at the historical context, Jude stating that he is a brother of James would only make sense at this point if he is referring to one particular brother, and that is the James that is leading the church in Jerusalem and has been leading that church since after the resurrection of Jesus. That James is the James that wrote the very first letter to the early New Testament church that we know as the book of James. That's right. And James writes that letter to the early New Testament church as an instructive letter to start the church out in understanding how to live out this following of Jesus. He writes it at a time where the church is in crisis and has no footing for what it means to follow Jesus. The, uh, the, the disciple of Jesus, also named James, a different James, is tricked into Herod's court and beheaded, killed. So an apostle is martyred, a shocking reality to the church. Peter, another apostle, is arrested and persecution is rising. And the church feels like, wow, is Rome going to win? Does the darkness win? Is it worth following Jesus? What does it look like? And it is into that space that James writes this incredible letter, the book of James. A practical unpacking to start us out on our journey as the church to say, live this way. Beautiful start. We also find out that the James that writes that letter to the church is a brother of Jesus. And I don't mean uh, in the profound sense that we are all siblings of Christ. I mean, he is actually a half brother of Jesus, born of the beauty of marriage between Mary and Joseph. So Jesus, obviously half brother, because Joseph did not participate in the, uh, in the, in the creation of Jesus. That was by the Holy Spirit. But then Joseph and Mary had some boys, uh, some kids. And we know this because in the gospels, on several occasions, which we will touch on, we encounter the brothers by name in the Gospels. Uh, there are four of them that we are aware of from Scripture. And James is one of them, and Jude is another. We'll get to that. So James, the brother of Jesus, writes this first letter uh, as he writes out. And now, uh, what a profound thing that God is utilizing James uh, one of the other brothers of Jesus, to sort of summarize and close out uh, the New Testament in the 60s, right before John finalizes us with his letters in Revelation. I just find it profound that God's like, I'm going to take these two brothers of mine, and I'm going to start out the journey with one of them, and I'm going to kind of close out the journey with the other. A simple, practical, here's how you do it. And simple summary, here's what matters. Please stick to this. Do this. What a, what a thing. But it is also fascinating that Jude would state in this letter as a starting point, Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother to James. It almost doesn't make sense, right? Because he is brother to who? Jesus. 
Jesus. So would it not make more sense to kind of state that? Because by stating that he's brother of James, he's kind of saying that, right? This is Jude, the brother of James, who are brothers to Jesus. Just FYI, you've got the context. But it, it, wouldn't it have just been simpler for him to say Jude, the brother of Jesus? Because is he Jesus's brother? Yes. Uh, in the same way, not only by literally blood, but uh, as we are, so it would have been appropriate to say that, but he doesn't. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus. What a statement to make about your brother you grew up with, your brother that you spent time with, your brother that irritated you, your brother that you thought was out of his mind, your brother that you rejected, your brother that you hated at times, your brother that you were like, are you kidding me? Are you, out, are you crazy? And you're like, how, how do you know? He, you, maybe he didn't feel any of that. Uh, we know he did because where is it written down? In the Bible. In the Bible. I love it. It's in the Bible, right? This brother has come to a place in his life where his clarity of Jesus is far more about Jesus being his king and his Lord and his savior and his master, someone other than his brother, bigger than his brother, more than his brother. So first and foremost, Jude says to you and I and to the people he's writing to, I have come to understand that this brother of mine that we fought as kids uh, with and, and, and as adults thought he was nuts, this brother of mine is my king. He is my savior. He is my Lord. He is my master. And I am his servant. That's what I am. What a thing for a brother to say. Honestly, for me, as it relates to the authenticity of who Jesus is, these are profound things for me. Because it's one thing for a group of people to hang out with Jesus and catch his, the side of him in our terms of like, oh yeah. But when you're the sibling and you're in the house and you are facing the irritations of a very obedient child and you apparently not so much and all that comes with that, man, for you to come to a place where you don't just go, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 he's cooler than I thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he's got quite a ministry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I honor his success. But to actually say this, I am a servant of this Lord and King. For that to occur, there is an authenticity of something that happened in Jude and James that I'm like, Jesus must be who he says he was. This change for them occurred at the point of resurrection, which changes everything, doesn't it? When Jesus rose from the dead, the brothers were like, oh, <laughs> he ain't crazy. I mean, listen to this, right? Uh, in, uh, prior to this, so these boys, they're growing up in a Jewish home. Uh, they are zealous uh, about that. They, they see Jesus stirring the pot with this new message that uh, seems to violate the traditions of Judaism. And it's practically also stirring the pot in the way that the leaders of the Jewish world want to kill Jesus. And they see all of this and their response to this, though they're trying to protect Jesus. They're like, we need to protect you because you crazy. They're also like, what is he doing? What is he thinking? Like sort of that sibling that says, get your head on straight. You're preaching a crazy message, disrupting the whole thing. You say you're all this, but then prove it because we're not seeing it and you're not doing anything about it. Listen, uh, it's, it's actually, uh, so we go to John first. John writes this. There's this little circumstance that occurs. Uh, in John chapter 7, uh, in verse 1, it says, After this, 
Jesus went, in, uh, went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, uh, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do not, if, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. It, it sounds like a very positive thing, but then it says this. For not even his brothers believed him. So they're basically like, look, man, uh, either prove yourself or stop with this crazy message. Because you're disrupting everything and putting yourself in danger and putting us in danger. And then listen to this. This actual language is in Mark. I, I love the way that this says it in Mark because it, it doesn't mince words one bit about how they felt. Mark chapter 3 verse 20. So there's this big crowd that's gathered and is following Jesus. And then they follow him to his house. Verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So now, you know, the boys are in the house. Jesus just showed up and there's this giant crowd and they need food. And they're like, this message you're preaching is crazy. Look what it says. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is Jude. This is James. This is his brothers. And to come from that space throughout their childhood and adulthood, to see Jesus resurrect and then to move from Jude, brother to Jesus, brother to James. No, 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 no. Jude, servant to master Jesus and brother alongside as fellow servant to master Jesus. I write to you. What a thing. What a thing for Jude to come to. And then uh, what's really cool about this is that this letter as it forms because of his connection with James uh, being his brother, we know that Jude is highly connected to the world of the apostles and the writings and all that. Why? Because James is leading the church in Jerusalem, which is sort of the epicenter of where everything comes and goes from an informational standpoint. Throughout the journey of the New Testament, anything, anytime something occurred that uh, was profound, the Samaritans came to know Jesus and got the Spirit. The Gentiles came to know Jesus and got the Spirit. This question came up in the church. This thing needed to be wrestled with. They would send word to Jerusalem. There's like two of you that are with me. I love it. To Jerusalem. And, and then Jerusalem would respond. So James is deeply connected to Peter. James is deeply connected to Paul. James is deeply connected to the apostles. They're deeply connected to him. Jude is deeply connected to James. And it turns out Jude is deeply connected to the apostles too. We know this because the book of 2 Peter or the letter of 2 Peter, when you study that alongside the letter of Jude, there are so many occasions as short as Jude is that literally language is let's call it stolen from the other letter, borrowed, right? It's literally word for word. It's like they were together at some point or one of them read the other one's letter and they were like, I can't say it better, so I'll just re-say it. And from our uh, historical context, it, it, it seems both in terms of history and in terms of the way the wording is that it was Peter borrowing from Jude. Yes! Oh my gosh, Peter, Peter! 
Peter was like, Jude said it better. I'll just rewrite what he said in his second letter. Oh, Jude said it better again. I'll just rewrite it. I'm like, when Peter is borrowing from your letter and then you write to the church, I'm listening. You understand what I'm saying? Like you are the person that Peter borrows from. You guys are all like, uh, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm pretty awed by that. Like, I want to meet Jude now, right after I meet Peter. Okay, so I just like Peter's personality. I don't know Jude that well. So, um, so this, is, this is the space we're in. One who understands where he stands with his master. One who understands what it means to be connected uh, to the intricacies of the gospel unfolding. And one who thinks and writes so deeply inspired by the Holy Spirit that Peter borrows words from Jude which means Peter reads Jude and Peter and Jude chat, I'm sure, quite a bit. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, now that we know what we're getting into, uh, let's keep going. So Jude, now we know where we're at. And then he says this, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So at first, you might encounter that little introduction. It sounds like it makes sense there. He's writing to a church and he's saying to the church, I'm writing to you and, and, and you are beloved by God uh, and, and called of God and, and kept by him. I just want you to know how I feel about you, right? So uh, a number of the letters written, uh, the attitude of the author of the letter toward the people he was writing to, whether it be a person, a church or a group of churches, when it was a letter where the church or the person was just um, uh, off, off kilter, uh, disobedient, missing the boat, you typically sort of had a bit of a, oh my gosh, what, can, what's going on, man? Like you started like, hey, uh, Paul, greetings to you. Um, can we talk? And then there were other letters like Philippians where it's like, every time I think of you, I think with great joy. So you would think, with this introduction that what kind of letter is this going to be as Jude writes to a, a church? Oh, that's right. One of those. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. You, you guys, my, my beloved, my called, my, my, my kept people. Except that this letter is nothing like that. This is a very hard letter to read. It's very corrective. And I mean, not in a nice way. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it's just, it, Jude hung out with James a bunch. So he's blunt. I mean, James was like, do this, do this. Jude's kind of the same way. He's like, what? Like, no, this has happened. In fact, Jude will start this letter after the introduction that we'll get into later this way. I would love to write to you all and have us celebrate our common salvation together. How fun would that be? Except that I can't because I've got to correct you from this insane course you're on. It's like the parents saying, I'd love to chat about some nice things, but we got to talk to have. And because this letter is going to be a hard letter, telling the church, you are blowing it in every way. And because you are, it is disrupting everything. What a profound thing that he starts this way. To you who are beloved by the Father, who are called by God, and who are kept by and for Jesus. What a statement to make to a bunch of people that are totally blowing it. And it begins us on the right footing. That who we are in Christ has nothing to do with us. 
and our faithfulness and our behaviors and our rightness and our awesomeness and our whatever else. It has to do with one and one alone. And who is that one? Okay, there were two of you. So we're going to do this. Okay. All of you l- turn around and look back at the wall back there. There's a big black wall in there. And on that wall, there is a small little word that is written. Look at that word. And I'm going to ask the question again. Who we are has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. That's right. And this is where he starts. You are not called because you have demonstrated a competency to be worthy of being called. You are not loved because you have proven that you can stay the course and be faithful. You are not kept because you are keeping yourself from falling and stumbling and you are getting it right. He called you and you are still called because he says so. And he loves you and you are still loved because he says so. And you will be kept in that positioning for Jesus by Jesus. So you don't even have to keep yourself. This is a borrowed language that Peter will borrow uh, later on. Now, in this case... This probably is out of the discussions because this is in Peter's first letter. It is reminiscent of what Peter said this way. Listen to how Peter writes this. Peter writes, oh, Peter's this way. This is what happens when you're in these little books. James, no, there. Okay, listen to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. One of my favorite passages in scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. Whose mercy? His mercy. He has caused us, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not kept in heaven by you. Kept in heaven for you, and then look what he says, who, us, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So God allows us to be participants in our salvation by our faith. You with me so far? But who authors our faith? Jesus does. Well, how do you know that? Hebrews chapter 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Who, who authors our faith? Jesus, who finishes our faith? Jesus, who empowers us to stay faithful? Jesus, who keeps our faith? Jesus, who keeps our future? Jesus. And what Jude is doing here is he's like, we're about to have a hard conversation about your foolishness, about your neglect, about where you're blowing it, about where it's not going well. So let me start here. You are still called. You are still loved. And you are still kept because you are called and beloved and kept because he said so, because he decided it, because that's what he said is true. And that's what he said will remain. I'm so sorry. You're stuck with that. That's where Jude starts. And I'm just like, wow, for all the things I will walk through in life to try to prove my faithfulness to God, all God's going to say day in and day out is you have nothing to prove to me and you can't even if you tried, but I will show you and prove to you everything. 
it is in our human journey, God's faithfulness proved to us that we will discover was the whole point and the whole journey. Because it will solicit in us a greater worship than ever when we wake up one day and realize, I had nothing to bring and brought nothing, and yet you brought everything. And that which I brought that was good, and that which I brought that helped is because you empowered me to do it. I mean, come on, how good is that? And that's where the book of Jude begins. And then Jude says this, as though he's like, that's not enough. He, he follows it with this. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So he's starting this letter. Literally, his next sentence is going to be, I'd love to chat about nice things about our salvation, but I got to course correct you in a big way. And then he's going to spend the rest of the letter in a very firm and direct way course correcting, right? And this is where he goes. Though the purpose of this letter in its immediacy will be to course correct. The purpose of every course correct is so that what would happen in you is that there would be a multiplication of your clarity, experience, and expression of God's mercy, a multiplication of your clarity, experience, and sense of God's love, and a multiplication of your clarity, experience, and sense of God's peace. When I come to you, and this is God speaking to us through Jude, just as Jude shares his heart for this church he's about to have a hard conversation with. God says this, when I have a hard conversation with you, why am I doing that? Because I love you, because I want what's best for you, because I want multiplied in you mercy and peace and love and grace. I am not having a hard conversation with you because I like having hard conversations and seeing you squirm. I'm not having a hard conversation with you because I'm disappointed and mad. I'm having a hard conversation with you because I love you and I know what's best for you. This is what a good parent does. A parent that cares about their child when they're coming in to have a hard conversation. And in case you just go, I don't do that every time. And I'm a, I'm a bad parent. Listen, man, I don't do it every time either. But in theory, when we have our heads on straight and our kids haven't completely unraveled us and we're not acting out of anger, then there is this really good way to parent when we're having a hard conversation. And on occasion, I get it right. And I'll come to my kid and I'm about to have sort of a course correct conversation. And I might start this way. Hey, buddy. Um, do you, you, know, you, you know how dad feels about you? Yeah. Okay. Do you know that I'm proud of you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. Okay. And, and do you know that I want what's best for you? I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's their way of saying yes. And then you say, and, and you know, no matter, no matter what we walk through and what I have to walk through with you, when I am engaging with you in hard conversations, it is to protect you, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, okay. And, and, and from my vantage point, what I'm gonna bring to your table to say this thing that you're doing or these things you're doing, not helpful. It's because I can look at it from my vantage point that has more history and wisdom and understanding perhaps than you. And my best understanding, my best guess is that the way I'm gonna tell you now to go is going to lead to whose better life? Yours. I tell my kids in regularity over the years, I've got my life. It's going quite well. Whatever you decide to do next, my life keeps going the way it's going now, but your life doesn't. So I'm not here because I want a better life. I'm here because I want something better for you. And I believe you want that something better too. 
So now we're going to have a hard conversation. That's what Judah's doing. Except that the difference between what Jude is doing and therefore God is doing through Jude is that though I am a limited human hoping that my clarity on what's best for my child is in fact best and we'll find out in my future that some of those things were not actually best for them, right? All the children say amen. Okay, yeah, there you go. Like, I, I get it. I'm, I'm doing my best guesswork here based on what I know. Has God ever guessed at anything? No, is God ever uncertain? Is he ever wondering whether this is good for you or not? No, so if God says, don't do this or do this or think this way or live this way, is that what is best for us? Period. So here's what he's saying. When I come to you to encourage you, to fan into flame what you're doing so well, to tell you how awesome it's going, I'm doing that because I want to multiply in you mercy and peace and love and grace. And when I come to you to exhort you, to correct you, to to be firm with you, to change course with you, I'm doing that because I want to multiply mercy and peace and love and grace in you and for you and through you. So come to me with whatever conversation we need to have, God says. And when I'm done with this conversation, the purpose of this conversation is to multiply in you things of life. The glory of your clarity and experience of my mercy. The wonder of your clarity and experience of my peace. The beauty of your clarity and experience of my love so that you would become one who is merciful, one who is peacemaker, and one who loves well because you know love and you know peace and you know mercy. What a place to start. And it reminds us that starting in this place is where we always have to start if our attitude to the correction is going to be rightly placed. Because otherwise we're going to feel like either God is disappointed and not proud anymore and we're going to diminish in love or we're going to feel like God's saying, get this right and do this. And we're going to be like, I can do it, God. I will show you how good I am. All those things come to us as human beings. But what God's saying is, no, 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 no. This is always founded in this. You are called because I said so. You are beloved because I said so. You will be kept because I said so, and I will do it. And when I come to you, it is so that mercy and so that peace and so that love might be multiplied in you because it's good for you, it's good for us, and it's good for the glory of God. And what does God say? I will do those things as I come to you. Of all the people, that could say this to us in an introduction with tears in his eyes saying, I know this to be true. I'm not guessing this to be true. I'm not wondering if this is true. I'm not theoretically uh, saying theologically this is true. I am the recipient of this truth. It is Jude. It is Paul. It is Peter. It is James. What did James and Jude spend their time doing throughout their growing years to the point of resurrection? Rejecting Jesus hating him. It says it, thinking he's crazy, wanting nothing to do with his insanity. God should have written those two boys off. But did God write them off? No, because they were called. They were beloved. And they were kept by who? By Jesus. Paul writes and says, I am the least of these. Why? What was Paul doing most of his life? 
rejecting Jesus, persecuting Jesus, persecuting Christians, hating Jesus. And Jesus should have wiped him off the map. And instead, Jesus said, Paul, you are called, you are beloved, and you are kept by me. Peter, Peter is literally defined by a name, which he has no business carrying, but uh, welcome to the human race. Peter, the, the rock, yes, but the worst one. Peter, the denier, right? You're all like, oh, the denier, that's the one, yeah. Why? Because what did he do? In a momentary reality, he denied Christ. I'm like, he was the most courageous of all, but he denied him, fair enough. And what did Peter say about himself too? He's like, you don't understand, man. In of myself, when I told Jesus, I have the strength to stand by you no matter what. Turned out he didn't. And God should have written him off and said, see, you're not faithful. See, you can't prove it. But instead, God said, Peter, you are called. You are beloved and you are kept. And so I, Jesus, will for each of you, Jude, James, Peter, and Paul, and all of you, and me, I will tell you this. You are called, you are beloved, and you are kept, and I will do in you what is necessary to multiply for you mercy, peace, and love, so that it will be multiplied through you, because that's what I do. What? Who are we that this is our place? And now bring the hard news because frankly, I just want to follow you if that's how deeply I'm loved. And that's why Jude starts here. Let us be obedient to Christ, not because he demands it, but because we are overwhelmed by what he has already said of us. And now we just want to, like Jude, say this, Renault, brother to these folks, brother to others, but servant to my master my King and my glorious Savior. Not because he made me so, but because I am called, I am beloved, and I am kept for mercy, for peace, and for love. Who does that for me? Jesus. So I am a servant to him now, even though I am a son and a brother. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible love for us and all that you have done for us without needing from us anything. And yet giving us opportunity through our faith to participate in salvation and through our zeal and efforts and works to participate in sanctification, becoming more like you. God, you constantly say, come on now, do these things because you can be a part of this. And yet you simultaneously constantly say, but I've got it. I've got you. You cannot lose me because you don't have me because you're holding on. You have me because I'm holding you. God, you are so good to us. And we are so grateful that we are safe with you. Even when we're foolish, even when we need course correction, even when we're blowing it, even when we're missing the boat, even when we've spent a lifetime not believing, rejecting, thinking you're out of your mind, you come, you grab us by the hands and you say, you are called, you are beloved, you are kept and you are mine. And we go, no, we can't, you don't understand. And you say, yes, yes, you can, because I say so. God, you love us with a love 
that we do not understand and are not deserving of, but we come before you in awe because you have loved us so well. We love you. Lead the way for us. Show us the way. Show us the straight path. Keep our feet on it. And when we divert, call us back because we know that your way is life, light, and freedom. And our way is darkness and death and bondage. We want to live your way because you love us and because we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.